You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, Good afternoon. Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 4, verse 27 to verse 42. I think it's behind me as well as in the Bible. Um, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what did you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Aaron. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here at DPC as well. Uh, It's great to be looking at John's Gospel. uh, And uh, just a note to say that uh, I've really enjoyed uh, kind of preaching through uh, lots of these uh, opening sections of John's Gospel. Next Sunday, uh, Peter Leslie, uh, who's a member of our church, if you haven't met him, he's going to be preaching next Sunday. So that'll be great. Next section in John 4. And then the following week, Adam Humphreys uh, is going to be preaching. And so I'm just going to go away. No, I'm not not going away. I'll be around. But... um, I'm having a couple of weeks off, and so thanks to those guys for serving by preaching. Uh, There's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card. Uh, There's a a copy of the Bible passage there. You can follow along. It'd be great to have the passage open, because I uh, hopefully will be saying things to explain the passage. Uh, And so it'd be good for you to check if I'm actually doing that. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we uh, are so uh, desperately in need of you to speak to us uh, and to feed us and encourage us and uh, nourish us spiritually this afternoon. And we pray, Father, that you might do that, uh, that our minds might be open, uh, ready to understand your word, uh, that our hearts might be softened, uh, ready to receive your word, uh, that your word... uh, might indeed feed our souls. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
so I wonder what you would say uh, really nourishes your soul. And maybe you think, oh, that word soul, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of Christian churchy term, uh, but not so much. But I remember when I was eight or nine years old, uh, I went over to my friend Murray's house. His dad was named Gavin. And uh, Gavin, Murray's dad, uh, was reading a book called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, this is kind of early 1990s. Uh, now, I don't know if you've heard of Chicken Soup for the Soul, but it's become a kind of multi-billion dollar organisation. Uh, at the time, they just released this book. Uh, I said to, to Gavin, my, my friend's dad, oh, I said, well, what's with this idea, Chicken Soup for the Soul? I probably didn't say it like that. You know, I was eight. But, uh, and and he, he explained it like this. He said, you know, just as sometimes uh, you need to have a bit of comfort food for your body, like some chicken soup if you're feeling a bit unwell, it feeds and cares for and nourishes your body. Also, other times you need some nourishment for your soul, some chicken soup for your soul. Now, if you're a vegetarian, just substitute, you know, veg vegetarian, you know, vegetable soup or whatever it is. You get the idea. We all need to, to feed and care for and nourish the deepest part of who we are, the, the core of our being. So I wonder what it is that nourishes your soul. For me, it's things like uh, being in the, the beauty of God's creation. I love sitting on the beach, watching the waves crash on the rocks, seeing a majestic mountain range sitting by a kind of quietly kind of bubbling by a stream, watching a beautiful sunset. Right, these things nourish my soul. Uh, listening to great music nourishes my soul. You might not think the music I like is great, but hey, it nourishes my soul. You know, nothing like the Rachmaninoff piano concerto, the third one. Right, maybe you're a fan. Right, and great music nourishes my soul. Uh, sitting with Gabby, watching quality British crime shows with a glass of red wine in my hand nourishes my soul. Uh, giving Felix a hug when he races down the passage excited to see me nourishes my soul. Sitting in, and reading God's word in a quiet moment of reflection nourishes my soul. What is it that nourishes your soul? And particularly on a hard day, well, what is it that sustains you, that encourages you, that feeds you? that energises you? What is it that nourishes your soul? In today's passage, I don't know if you noticed, but we actually get a glimpse into the very soul of Jesus, into the thing that, that feeds and sustains Jesus, that nourishes Jesus. And in summary, what we see in this passage is that what nourishes Jesus' soul is knowing that he's doing the will and work of his Father. That's what feeds Jesus and sustains him. It's what keeps him going in life, knowing deep within his being, in the very core of who he is, uh, that he is doing the will and work of his Father. So we're going to be exploring this idea today. What is it that nourishes Jesus' soul? What is it that nourishes our soul? And we're going to do that under the heading, three different headings, three sections of the passage, the joyful witness of the women, uh, the woman, the nourishing food of the sun, and the great harvest among the Samaritans. Uh, so take a look first at verses 27 to 31, where we see the joyful witness of this woman. That's the, the Samaritan woman that we met last week in Jesus' conversation with her uh, at the well. Uh, in verse 37, uh, take a look at verse 37. John says, 
Uh, just then, Jesus' disciples returned uh, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Uh, but no one asked, well, what do you want or why are you talking with him? So Jesus' conversation with the woman that has been happening uh, till the end of verse 26, that's interrupted by Jesus' disciples coming back. Uh, if you've got the whole chapter open, you can scan back to verse 8. Uh, you'll see that Jesus has been sitting by this well uh, and his disciples have gone into town, the village of Sychar, to buy some food. Uh, and when the disciples get back with the supplies, uh, they're very surprised to find Jesus speaking with a woman. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems quite sexist, doesn't it? Particularly to, to our ears in our culture. Uh, it was perhaps uh, more acceptable in this culture. I'm not saying it is acceptable, I'm just saying it was very common amongst Jewish men to consider women to essentially be a bit of a nuisance, a bit of a distraction from, well, the much more important things like sitting around and chatting about God's word. Women kind of got in the way of that. So Jesus' disciples don't get it, right? Why is their, their rabbi, their teacher, a respected Jewish man speaking with this woman? And not just speaking with her, but speaking with her out in the open, in public. What a shameful thing to do. And the audacity of the woman right, to, to presume to be speaking to Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything about this, does he? We know, though, from the second half of verse 27, that, that the disciples are thinking these questions. You know, why is she talking to him? What are you doing talking with her? And we know from the first few chapters of John's Gospel that's no surprise to Jesus, is it? He knows what's going on in people's hearts and minds. He's God in the flesh. He knows everything about what's going on. Jesus doesn't say anything about it at the moment. It's pretty clear, though, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't agree with his disciples' take on things. Jesus sought out this conversation with the woman. He kept the conversation going. Why? Because he knows that earlier in this chapter, he talked about the gift of God, the gift of salvation. He talked about eternal life. He talked about the wonderful offer of living water that satisfies the deepest thirsts of our soul. And Jesus knows that all of that, all those blessings are on offer to everyone. Well, it's not an exclusive offer to Jewish men. They're on offer to all kinds of people including this Samaritan woman. So Jesus is a bit countercultural in this, even different to his own disciples, having this conversation with the woman. And then to take a look in verse 38, that the woman recognises, okay, maybe Jesus' disciples don't want me around. The conversation with Jesus is interrupted. So verse 28, then we're told, leaving her water jar, uh, the woman went back to the town uh, and said to the people, just think about that, that phrase, that little phrase there. She left her water jar. Why does John put that in there? Why is it important? Well, on one level, it could just be uh, that she's so excited to have met Jesus. She's so eager to get her townsfolk to meet Jesus uh, that in that moment, she's a bit forgetful. She, she leaves her water jar behind. And it could just be that. But, but John's really big on things having a couple of different meanings, isn't he? Living water, meaning not just physical water, but water for your soul and so on. So I think what John's saying, he's giving us a little window here into the real change that's happened in this woman's life. So you remember that the woman came out to the well, she had her water jar, and she was physically thirsty. 
and she needed this water jar. That the water jar was the key to satisfying her thirst. It was only with the water jar that she could draw the water out of the well. But then she met Jesus. And meeting Jesus has changed everything. Jesus gave her this living water that comes from a relationship with him, the one who is the spring of living water. And now the deepest thirsts of her soul, not just her body, are satisfied and content in knowing Jesus. And so in this moment, her physical thirst just doesn't seem that important. She leaves the water jar behind. Another sign of the change in this woman's life is where does she go? Look in verse 28. She goes back to her town, back to the town, and says to the people. Do you remember from last week that this woman isn't the most popular person in her town? What time of day is she coming out to the well? Not rhetorical, crying out. Middle of the day. Yeah, yeah. And when did the other women come out to the well? Dusk, dawn or dusk, yeah, out of the heat of the day. That was when they, they came out. She's coming out in the middle of the day by herself because she's largely been rejected and ostracised by her own community. Remember, she's had a series of relationships with different men uh, in the local community and people aren't the biggest fan of her. She doesn't want to face people. She, she goes out by herself in the middle of the day minding her own business. And yet here, she's met Jesus. She met Jesus and it's completely changed her life. She's been set free of all her fear and shame and guilt and that's been replaced with a newfound confidence and assurance as she knows the love of the God who made her. What does she care about the opinion of others when God himself in human form loves her and has given her living water? And so she goes back into this town that's full of people who have been rejecting her to talk to them about Jesus. What does she say? Take a look in verse 29. Come, she says, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And notice the, the simplicity of what she says. Come and see Jesus. She hasn't learned by this stage. She hasn't gone to Bible college. She hasn't learned a kind of sophisticated gospel outline. She hasn't, you know, watched some stuff on YouTube to, to get her head around how to do evangelism. No, she, she just kind of says, come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Well, we've already seen in John's gospel that this is really at the heart of what it means to point people to Jesus, to be a witness for Jesus. That's John's language, people bearing witness to Jesus. You could look back later on. Ben, uh, back around the start of January, did a great job of speaking to us from John chapter 1. He showed us how uh, the kind of core of John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus was to say, John 1 verse 29, Look, see, behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come and see Jesus, John the Baptist was saying. And the following week, Stu, Stu who's leading the service today, did a great job, again, of showing us how, how Philip says to Nathaniel, look, I know Nathaniel, you might think that there's nothing good that could ever come out of Nazareth, but come and check Jesus out for yourself. Right? Just come and see Jesus. 
That's what the Samaritan's doing here in John 4. Come and see Jesus. And this is what we're called to. Remember, uh, was it late last year? We were looking at at the book of Acts, and we we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, that Jesus calls all his disciples to do just this thing, to be witnesses for him, uh, to say to people, come and see Jesus. I reckon we sometimes complicate what it means to be a witness for Jesus. We think we've got to have all those things that I mentioned before. We've got to have all the answers to all the tough social and cultural and theological questions. But maybe we can just say to people, I don't have all the answers, but let me tell you about one who does. Come and see Jesus. Check Jesus out. Investigate Jesus. Come and get a taste of who Jesus is. I reckon all of us can do that. And notice that the woman says, come and see Jesus. And she says, a man who told me everything that I ever did. I don't know if you've ever heard someone give a testimony like that. It's a bit odd, don't you think? Think back to to the conversation that the woman had with Jesus. Why didn't the woman say, you know, come and see the man who offered me living water to satisfy my deepest thirsts? The man who offered me eternal life. The man who's taken all my shame away. The man who's shown me amazing grace. Why didn't she say those? Like, Why is it that Jesus' insight into the private details of her life, you know, the man who told me everything I ever did, why is it that that is the core of her story, her testimony about Jesus? It's a bit weird. I think that the context of John 4 helps us a little bit. Like, why is this such a big deal amongst a community of Samaritans, for example? So if you scan back, if you've got your Bible open, take a look in verse 19. You might remember in verses 16 to 18 that Jesus said to this woman, he showed, he, I guess, put on display his supernatural insight. Jesus knew about the private details of her life, these relationships with a series of men. And so in verse 19, the woman says about Jesus, hey, I see that you're a prophet. You're a man sent by God who has supernatural insight from God, a man who speaks the very words of God. And then in the following verses, verses 20 to 24, Jesus explains, he answers the big theological question that had divided the Jews and the Samaritans for centuries. Remember, where's the right place to worship Where can I access and experience the presence of God? Which one is the true temple? Jesus answered that, and in verse 25, the the woman says, well, maybe you're not just a prophet. Like Maybe you're actually the Messiah. Because she knows that when the Messiah comes, what's he going to do? He's going to explain everything. You see, we have to remember, this woman is a Samaritan woman. How much of the Bible did the Samaritans believe was God's word? Do you remember? First five books. So they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as God's word. And in those first five books of the Bible, one of the key expectations of the Messiah, God's chosen king, his promised king, who was going to come and kind of establish God's kingdom, one of the key expectations in the book of Deuteronomy is that one day God would send a prophet 
A prophet who wasn't just like Moses, but was even greater than Moses. The capital P prophet, the prophet to end all prophets. The prophet who would display incredible, flawless, supernatural insight. So it's a really big deal for the Samaritans. This is a key aspect of what it means for the Messiah to come. And so you see that the woman says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. What's her question to her community? Could this be the Messiah? Right? She knows that her people are, are, are kind of waiting for someone who's going to have all the answers, who's going to be able to explain everything. Oh, so that's core to her testimony. You take a look in verse 30, the people of the town are intrigued. Could this be the Messiah indeed? They come out of the town uh, and they um, come towards Jesus. So this is the joyful witness of the woman. So let me say, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're someone who, whose life has been transformed by meeting with Jesus, coming into a relationship with Jesus, if that's you, I wonder how you would finish that sentence, come and see Jesus, dot, dot, dot. What would you say? It might not be the man who told me everything I ever did. Something different. Come and see Jesus, the one who gave me more freedom in life than I ever thought possible, the one who replaced my guilt and shame with a sense of innocence and honour, the one who gave me living water to satisfy the deepest thirsts of my soul, the one who maybe gave me comfort and joy even in the midst of my sorrow. Hope in the midst of my despair. The one who gave me meaning and purpose in a world that so often seems random and meaningless. But how would you finish that sentence? Come and see. Come and see the one who what? What difference has Jesus made to you? I reckon that would be a great conversation for us to have with one another after church. Ask one of your brothers and sisters here at church, uh, how would you finish that sentence? Maybe you could pray for one another about that. Uh, this is one of the joys of being a part of a community that's full of people who've met Jesus. We're not like this woman. right? We're not lone rangers out there by ourselves. right? We've got one another. We can talk to one another. We can uh, clarify things. We can pray for one another. We can spur one another on to say to others, come and see Jesus. Come and meet the Jesus who has transformed my life. So that's the joyful witness of the woman. And then in verses 31 to 38, we have the nourishing food of the son. That's Jesus, God's son. I'll take a look at in verse 31. Uh, meanwhile, we're told his disciples urged him, Rabbi, have something to eat. Oh, that seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Oh, maybe Jesus sent them into the town to get food. We don't know. Uh, we already have heard in this chapter, Jesus gets thirsty. He gets uh, tired. Presumably he gets hungry, like he really is God in the flesh, a, a true human being. Uh, they're on this long walk, three days from Judea to Galilee, have something to eat, his disciples say, which seems reasonable. But look in verse 32. Jesus says, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about. 
a bit ungrateful, perhaps. You know, they might have been some long queues at the, you know, I don't know, at the fish and chip shop in Sychar. They've kind of brought it all back. And now Jesus says, well, you know, I've got food to eat you guys know nothing about. You might have been thinking, well, why bother sending us into town in the first place if you've got a hidden stash of food? But what's Jesus saying? Right? He's saying, uh, he probably has in mind a passage from the Old Testament, uh, maybe Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You can look that up later on. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying, yes, as human beings, we need physical food. Well, that's what sustains us, our physical bodies. But deep down, we need more than that. We need chicken soup for our souls. We need spiritual food to nourish and care for the deepest part of who we are. Because, yes, God made us to have bodies, but he also breathed his life into us. We've got a soul and we've got to care for that part of our being. Or else we end up as hopelessly malnourished human beings. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's got spiritual food that they know nothing about. Food that satisfies him, that sustains him, uh, that makes him content. A bit like the, the series of people before them in John's Gospel. Remember Nicodemus? What do you mean born again? I can't go into my mum's womb again. Why, the, the, the woman with the living water? What do you mean living water? You don't even have a jar to draw things. Why, Jesus' disciples don't get it either. Now look in verse 33. They say, uh, Then Jesus' disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? You know, maybe he got onto Uber Eats out here by the well. You know, he just got some food delivered. Like, they're confused about what Jesus is talking about. Incidentally, it's kind of interesting that this kind of section of the, of the chapter starts with the disciples rocking up and thinking that they're better than the Samaritan woman. Looking down their nose at her. And yet, they're just as spiritually kind of thick in this instant as she was, weren't they, aren't they? Right? They don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual food for our souls, not just physical food. So in verse 34, Jesus explains the food that he's talking about. What does he say? He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. At the core of Jesus' being, there is something that sustains him, that feeds him. There's something that nourishes his soul. You notice the two words that start with W. They're the key words. It's the will of his Father and the work of his Father. That's God the Father. If you're not familiar, you know, as Christians we believe in the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus is saying that what nourishes his soul is knowing that he's doing the will and work of his Father in heaven. So what is the will and work of his Father? Well, there's quite a few ways that you could answer that question. Even in the next chapter, Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day when there's supposed to be a day of rest. And the Jewish leaders challenge him and what does Jesus say? He says, my father is always at work. But even on the Sabbath, my father in heaven is at work providing life and sustenance to everyone and everything. 
So as the son who delights in doing the will of my father, in doing the work of my father, even on the Sabbath, I'm going to be busy bringing restoration and life to whoever I want. This is a really big theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the Son of God, his great delight is to do the will of his Father, to show the work of his Father, to show the glory of his Father, to imitate his Father, to be like his Father. And he knows that to do that, to show God the Father to the world, he must humbly surrender to doing the will and work of his father. And I think here in John chapter 4, the will and work of his father has a particular slant on it. If you've got John 4 open, uh, why don't you scan back to, to verse 23? Verse 23. You see there in verse 23, Jesus speaks about what his father wants. What is it that his father wills? What is it that he seeks? His father seeks. True worshippers. True worshippers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we talked last week about how worshipping God, coming to God the Father in spirit and in truth, is to come to him through believing in Jesus, the one who gives the spirit, the one who is the true revelation of God. So what is it that the Father wants? What is a core to his work and will in the world? It's to gather a multitude of people who are giving him the true worship that he deserves, the true love and adoration and praise and thanks that he deserves through believing in Jesus, his Son. This is core business. This is what the Father wills and wants. And you might say, well, that's a bit self-indulgent for God the Father uh, to, to kind of have as core business that the people would gather around him and worship him. No, 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 this is how God made us. God made us to live and thrive and flourish, to have our souls nourished as we give ourselves to worshipping him. Uh, so it's the most selfless thing that God could do to bring us to be true worshippers of him through believing in Jesus, his son. And so what's happened in this chapter? Right? Why is it that Jesus has food that his disciples know nothing about? Why is it that his soul has been sustained and fed and nourished? Because the Samaritan woman has just become a true worshipper of his father. She's just believed in Jesus. And she's going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, giving him the worship and adoration that he deserves. Uh, that is like a snack for Jesus' soul. It nourishes him. What a delight for him to be involved in his Father's work of gathering true worshippers like this Samaritan woman. Uh, but he's not content. He's, I mean, he's content on the one hand, but he wants more true worshippers of his Father. So he starts talking about a great harvest of people coming to know him. Take a look in verse 35. He says, don't you guys have a saying uh, that it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, uh, look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. Right, Jesus is using this metaphor of the harvest to describe a whole lot of people becoming Christians. A whole lot of people 
uh, becoming true worshippers of his father by believing in him. And he's saying to his disciples, you guys might think that this bumper crop is still coming in four months or six months' time, but it's actually starting right now with this Samaritan woman who you guys just look down your nose at. But she's a part of my father's plans and purposes, his work and will in the world. Open your eyes, he's saying. And so in verses 36 to 38, Jesus extends the harvesting metaphor to speak about sowing and reaping. If you're going to have a harvest, you have to sow and reap. Look in verse 36, he says, Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. This is the saying, uh, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't uh, worked for. Uh, Others have uh, done the hard work uh, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. So what's God the Father's will? It's that among his people, at different points in history, there would be those who sow and those who reap. Sowing is a kind of a a picture, a metaphor for sharing the good news about Jesus. And reaping is a picture of actually seeing people come to believe in Jesus. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you guys haven't done the hard work of sowing the good news about me. At this point, that's mostly done by, been done by people like John the Baptist. But he's saying, even though you haven't done the hard work of sowing, you're coming in at the opportune time where you get to see a great crop of people coming to believe in me and have eternal life. What a great joy to be a part of this wonderful harvest, Jesus is saying. But this is what nourishes Jesus' soul. This is the food for the son to do the will and work of his father in seeing a great multitude, a great harvest of people becoming true worshippers of his father by believing in him. And so in verses 39 to 42, we have this wonderful big crop of Samaritans coming to know Jesus. Look in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything that I ever did. It's a wonderful joy if you become a Christian. This woman hasn't only believed in Jesus for herself, but she's a part of other people's story of coming to know Jesus. This is what God wants for you if you're a Christian. Despite all my weakness and all my flaws, all my sin, all my mess... God wants to use me to help other people come to know Jesus. That's what this woman's experienced. So having believed in Jesus, in verse 40, that these Samaritans, uh, we read that when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. I remember back in, in verse 9, I think it was verse 9, I don't have the passage open in front of me, but John, I think, told us that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We mustn't forget that when some Samaritans come to Jesus and say, come and stay with us for two days. Jesus says, sure, no problem. 
He's not just happy to have a, a, a five-minute chat out of the well. He's happy to go and stay with them, share food with them, sleep in beds in the same house. Because right, he understands uh, he understands that if his father is prepared to accept these people through believing in him, who is he to not accept them? Right, this kind of radical acceptance, this hospitality is a core response to the good news of the gospel, that absolutely anyone can come to God the Father through believing in Jesus. So in verse 42, that the Samaritans say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. And now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. There is a point, uh, isn't there, when you can uh, hear lots of stuff about Jesus from other people who know him, but in the end, you have to meet Jesus for yourself. And maybe there are some people here today, you've been in and around Christians, you've heard lots of stuff about Jesus from other people, like this Samaritan woman told her town about Jesus. But in the end, they had to meet with Jesus for themselves and decide for themselves who Jesus was, he's the saviour of the world. Not just the saviour of the world, he's my saviour. The one who died on the cross for my sins. Right, so if you're here today and you haven't believed in Jesus, don't be content with hearing what other people have to say about Jesus. Right, listen to Jesus himself. Believe in him for yourself. Now, this is the great harvest that Jesus sees among the Samaritans. Uh, so how is it that we can really find nourishment for our souls? Uh, Jesus found nourishment for his soul in doing the will and work of his father. That's what we've seen in this passage. And we know from the rest of John's gospel that, that Jesus is willing to do the will and work of his father all the way to his death on the cross. All right, later on, you should look up John chapter 17, verse 4. But in John 17, verse 4, Jesus prays to his Father, saying, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Right, this is how the Son brings glory to his Father, how he makes his Father look great and attractive and majestic. It's by finishing the work that his Father gave him to do. But even as Jesus prays this, he knows there's one more thing he has to do to finish the work. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he's kind of getting towards the very end of his life, and with his last breath, what does he cry out? John 19, verse 30, it is finished. He's saying, the work of my Father is done. It's complete. It's finished. Jesus glorifies his father in a kind of climactic sense by giving his life for our sins on the cross, paying off the debt for all of our sins, past, present and future sins, so that the work of salvation is done. It's finished. We don't have to strive to save ourselves anymore because Jesus has done all the work. It is finished. So by believing in Jesus, we can know not just that our sins have been paid for, but we are adopted into God's family as his children, loved by him, precious to him. We sang about that in our first song. 
We are adopted and loved by God the Father. And so just as Jesus was secure in the love of God his Father, so also we can be secure in the love of God our Father. Not because of our performance, but because of Jesus' performance, his work on the cross. And just as Jesus was, uh, Jesus' soul was nourished by knowing he was doing the will and work of, our fa- of his Father, so also our souls can be nourished knowing that we're doing the will and work of our Father. And not that we represent our Father perfectly like Jesus did. Well, that's a once-for-all job. But we can find nourishment for our souls in giving ourselves uh, to our Father's will in offering him the worship that he deserves. But this is where we live and flourish as human beings. That is what feeds and nourishes and sustains us, being true worshippers of God the Father. And we can find nourishment for our souls in helping others to become worshippers of the Father, in seeing them join us in giving our Father the praise and worship that he deserves. That is is what will offer you deep and lasting nourishment for your soul, doing the will and work of God your Father. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Uh, You know that our souls uh, desperately need to be nourished, to be fed and sustained. Uh, You know the lack that each one here might feel. I pray that this day uh, that you would indeed nourish us, feed us, sustain us. Uh, We thank you that through believing in Jesus, your son, we can be secure in uh, your love for us as our father. And we pray, Father, that we would give ourselves to doing your will and your work in giving you the worship uh, that you deserve and in seeking to say to others, come and see Jesus, and that they too may worship you as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.